This sermon is brought to you by Shofar East London. Together, living out the fullness of Christ. We hope you enjoy this message. When love and truth come together, I'm sure you've all heard the song, the classic Beatles song from the 60s. All you need is love. Is that a true statement? All you need is love. If we can go back to the 60s, you would uh, be reminded of slogans, especially in the the U.S., influence the rest of Western culture. They would be saying, let's make love, not war. How did that work out for us? From the 60s, there has been a massive shift in culture, um, especially in Western culture. Things have really changed. But there was this proclamation. All you need is love. Make love. Don't make war. And then everything's solved and it's beautiful. Everything is perfect. Is it so? I think the challenge is that it depends on your definition of love. What do you mean by saying love? And I think that's when you want to get to the point where like, when love and truth meet, something beautiful happens. But it, it would seem like our culture has lost its handbrake. It's just like sliding. So I saw on um, News 24, I saw this picture of this couple. You get couples and you get thruples. U.S. Thruple, Rebecca, Carla, and Alex. And they, the title was U.S. Women Opens Up About Kitchen Table Polyamory. I don't even know how you say it. But it's basically, they, 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 it's not, you know, couple, mean two. Thruple three. You get quads as well. You get more than quads. And you get all kinds of genders now. There's 470 something genders. Did you know that? Till around seven years ago, it was two. Male and female. And now we are free. Everything goes. And it's working out well for us, isn't it? Culture. It's just everything's perfect. Just love. Love is love. Is it? Is it? Okay, so I want to unpack that a bit. You can go back to the first slide. When love and truth meet, critical, is love love without truth? According to the scriptures, no. Love plus truth ultimately becomes true love. Okay, so I want to unpack that a bit and and uh, and help us. So you see, if, if we, as the church, if we're going to move forward, if we're going to see the Great Commission fulfilled, we, we're going to need two critical components. One is a heart of compassion, the love of God. And the other side is backbones of steel. Because culture is pushing. Shouting, screaming at the church, change, change your truth, reduce your values, because that is love. Everyone's welcome, just the way they are. Well, true, but then truth comes in and he says, you're welcome, but you're going to have to change. You're welcome, but you're going to have to apply the word of God in your life. And that's how God Relates to all of us. He's a loving dad. He says, everybody's welcome. The door is wide open. But the moment we come, is going to, okay, let's, let's talk about a few things. Let's talk about these areas in your life that is causing havoc and pain and destruction in your life. Let's deal because I'm a loving dad. I want to help you. That's, that's our loving father. So I love this um, quote by um, Eberhard Arnold that said, truth without love kills. Truth without love kills. But love without truth 
lies. So you need both. And we see this in the scripture, so we're going to unpack this a little bit. But truth without love is like, you know, that classic kind of stereotype of the church. It's like, you know, Christians standing on the street corners with placards. You're all going to go to hell. That kind of thing. And I agree. That's terrible. That's just going to cause people to run away from Jesus. It's different to have a one-on-one discussion with someone and say, hey, if you die today, do you know where you're going? That's compassion. That's love. But but shouting and screaming with, with people that we don't have a relationship with and no context, that, that kills. You know, so I, I shared last week about the church being like a hospital. And all of us are like doctors. We're physicians in partnership with a great physician, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and God's heart is to heal and to restore. So imagine there's a patient coming in, you're the doctor, they have cancer, and you're like, hey, I want to I wanna sort out this cancer, I want to help you. So what does the doctor do? You take a sledgehammer, big hammer, hold still, hold still, is it going to solve it? No, that's truth without love. You want to using a sledgehammer to, to, to try and solve something, to try and help, but you're not helping. You're causing, you're making it worse. You're going to damage, you're going to br- bring so much damage to somebody's life. And in the same way in, in our relationships, as I shared last week about the, the breakfast of champions is feedback. Feedback. So in a relationship, in a marital relationship, you can be true. It can be true what you're saying. It could be right what you're saying. But if there's no compassion, there's no understanding of what your partner is going through, that will just hurt and push them away. In the same way with parents and children, so many religious parents who are right, it's true. But they push their children away from God because it's so restrictive. It is so unkind. It is so... There's no understanding and compassion of what the teenager or the child is going through and their struggles. And so truth without love, without understanding, without kindness, without compassion, it just kills. It just hurts. It just pushes people away. But love without truth also lies. It lies. It would be... You know, real compassion would be the patient coming into hospital, the doctor seeing, okay, there's cancer. The solution, say, is we need to cut it out. And so compassion plus truth would be the doctor with a scalpel, with tender, carefully doing the operation, cuts out the cancer with minimal damage to the rest of the person's body. Now, that is where love and truth meet. It brings healing. It brings, ultimately I'll share about it, it brings freedom. It's beautiful. But love without truth lies. So the doctor could be in the hospital, patient comes in, they've got like a a cut on the arms, relatively superficial. It's like, just we're going to do a few stitches, Wonderful doctor is kind and compassionate and understanding. Doctor is doing it so beautifully. It's like, oh, this is such a nice doctor. He loves me so much. And then as the doctor is doing this, he picks up this person has cancer, massive tumor on the body. And he's like, I'm just going to love you. So I won't tell you. You're going to be dead in a few months. But I just want you to feel so loved today. So I'm not giving you the truth. Is that love? No. That's a lie. Love without the truth is a lie. Or an alcoholic drinking themselves into oblivion. And we're just affirming them. It's just so wonderful. I don't want to make you feel unloved. eh? So you are wonderful. Keep on going. Do it. You're great. You're good. No. You're going to, hey, do you realize what's happening? What, what you're doing? 
hurting yourself, hurting the people around you. Can we help you? Can we help you to get to those root issues? Maybe something that happened when you were small and your dad did something that wounded you and that just led to a you know, cascade of events in your life that relate to this drinking thing. Come on. We want to we help you. Okay? So love without truth is a lie. Is a lie. Okay, so we, so there's both excesses. The one is truth without love kills and love without truth lies. And then there's this beautiful place right in the middle where love and truth meet. That is where Jesus shows up. You want God in your life? You want to experience the presence and the glory and the goodness of God? Love plus truth equals Jesus in the house. That is the biblical way. That is the way of freedom. That is the way of life. And that is what God is calling us into. So let's embrace both love and truth. So we're going to tackle a few things today. Some uh, <clears throat> few uncomfortable uh, topics we're going to tackle. But it's gonna really, I really believe it's going to help us uh, into freedom. So John 1 verse 14. It speaks about Jesus. And it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, they're full of grace and truth. It says, and the word. See, Jesus is the word. He is truth. Plus, he is love. And where both of them come together, we see the glory of God. Come on, say grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved. Do you know what that looks like? It looks like last night's rugby game. <laughs> undeserved, disastrous, horrific, painful, moving us to prayer and intercession. Praying for all the Christians in the Bok team. Thinking how could we lose against such a pagan nation as England? Just kidding, just kidding. But the so Lord, and then we win. Thank you, Jesus. Undeserved. That is a picture of grace. Your behavior is terrible. It is your performance is useless in your life and in rugby. And then you win. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. Now we're a miracle team. The prayers of those, those uh, our guys are pulling us through. Praise God. But so Jesus is full of grace and truth. So when those two meet, you will see the glory of God. This is so critical. If you want beautiful relationships, beautiful marriage, beautiful any form of relationship, parents to kids, and you need grace plus truth. You need love plus truth. Compassion plus a backbone. Of steel, especially with the two-year-olds. Backbone of steel when you're a parent. You need to stand strong. But we know this. We know this with a, you know, a parent that, you know, you say, oh, I love my child so much, the five-year-old. I love you so much. You can do whatever you want to do. You can play in the traffic. You can watch anything online. You can do whatever you want because I love you so much. What is that? Is that love? That's abuse. You're neglecting your responsibility as a parent. That's why you need a, you know, backbone of steel <laughs> to steer them down. No, I'm the parent. There will be boundaries. Real love gives boundaries. Real love adds truth. That is so, so important. Now, the challenge is when it comes to many of the things I'm going to tackle now, in terms of the practical things of these things, is that many people are led by their emotions. This world is about if it feels good, do it. And where is that taking us? To a train wreck. It's a train wreck. If you allow your emotions to lead you, either your life is going nowhere or it's going to be a train wreck, but nothing good is going to come from it. So it's like a train. You have the engine and then you have the caboose, the one that the, the, the right at the back, the caboose following the engine. Now, if the engine 
of your life are your emotions. You f- it feels right. It's going to be a train wreck. The engine should be the truth. Because you should check your emotions. You should challenge your emotions with the truth. And your and truth should lead and emotions should follow. Come on, say amen. That could save somebody one day. Because when it comes to love, I often see in this romantic love, it's like, we're in love. And the girl's like, oh, the guy's perfect. He's perfect. There's nothing. Oh, we never fight. And they've been like two weeks of relationship. And... And I, when I, some of the people come and see me and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I am not marrying you until you've been at least dating for eight months. I'm not interested. Cause infatuation, romantic eros love makes you blind, dumb and stupid. And I have seen this. I've seen this. Oh, we're so in love. We want to get married. I was like, whoa, <laughs> give it time. This is risky. It could work out, but it is risky. Because you can't see the flaws. And then sometimes, four months in, girl comes back like, no, the guy was a nightmare. I saw that. I saw that. But when our emotions lead us, we find ourselves in trouble. Your marriage, it's not, it's not buying a horse. Okay, and I'm going to get there later on. But marriage is massive. It's a covenant before God until death do us part. So you need to get your things in place. Otherwise, it's just really, really risky. So don't allow your emotions to lead you. Challenge your emotions because emotions lie. Come on, say it. Emotions lie. That is the truth. Emotions lie. And we tend to get emotionally involved with something in our lives. And we're like, but I so want it. No, welcome to reality. There's a lot of things you could want, but it doesn't mean that you should have it. We should challenge our emotions with the truth if we want a blessing in our lives. So truth gives context to love. Truth gives context to love. What I mean? It gives boundaries. Like the parent with a child gives boundaries. Like a heavenly father with us, boundaries. You see, love without truth is lust. That's what the Bible calls it. Love without truth is lust. It's outside of God's divine boundaries and borders. It's like fornication, sex outside of marriage. It isn't love. It is lust. That's what the Bible calls it. In other words, God gives us these gifts and with the good gift and every gift he gives us, there's a manual that comes with it. It says, guys, this works best in this, in this environment. It's like, take your TV. Do not dunk it in the swimming pool. You think that's common sense, okay? But so these days, nothing's common sense anymore. So the word of God gives us, like, here's the gift. Now use it only in this context. And it's going to be a blessing. It's like, here's the gift of sex. It is for a man and a woman. I didn't need to say this in the past. But a man and a woman within holy matrimony. That is the gift. The God says, I'm going to bless you. With sexual intimacy, it's a wondrous gift. It is beautiful. It, it unites a husband and wife. It, it, it obviously leads to procreation, godly parents. It is such a blessing to the couple. It's beautiful, but only in the context of these borders, of these boundaries. Love without truth is lust. Fornication is lust. How do I know that? Because if, guys, if you really love the girl, you're going to wait. If you really love her, you're going to have self-control. If you really love her, you're going to do this right because you want to marry her and you want to love her for the all of your days. So you want to do it right. You say, I'm going to wait. I'm going to honor God and I'm going to truly love you by saying, no, we're going to wait until the right time. So 
I mean, I love it when we do a, 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 a wedding and the couple kept themselves pure until the day. That's just well done. God's going to bless you. And obviously, for those of us who have not remained pure until marriage, there's forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. Okay, there's compassion and there's grace. But I want to bring the truth into this because I want to help you. I want to help you because things get weird when we don't do it God's way. You know, I often pray for people for deliverance. I mean, deliverance from demonic spirits. And so I was doing a Zoom call with this girl and I'm in those crazy manifestations and things and the follow-up thing. And then I was like, something, something's not right. This level of demonic influence on your life. I'm like, surely, surely you had sex outside of marriage. I just, I just know it in my spirit. You, it must be. So then I spoke to her and I asked, Hey, have you had sex outside of marriage? And she said, yes, multiple times, multiple partners started when she was a student. And there's a lot of generational curses in her life. But I was like, when did things fall apart? When did things truly unravel the suicidal thoughts where you try to hang yourself, electrocute yourself and kill yourself with pills? When did that start to unravel? Now, well, just after I started to have sexual intercourse with another student at university, open the floodgates of hell. When that happened, you see, so the blessing, the gift of, 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 of sexual intimacy outside of God's context, it's destructive. Love without truth is a lie and it's lust. That's what the Bible calls it. Any desire outside of the will of God is destructive. It, be, it becomes a train wreck. Okay. So, so we have to. To be aware of these kinds of things. Matthew 5.28 says, this is Jesus speaking. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoever looks at a woman to lust. So in other words, you're a married man and you have strong desire for another woman, not your wife. Bible calls it lust and calls it destructive, adultery. Things are gonna, things are gonna go wrong here. Okay. So it's not godly desire. It's ungodly desire. It is lust. It's not love. It's never love. If it's outside of the boundaries of God and it leads to a lot of pain. So some years ago, uh, about four years ago, my wife and I were married now for 22 years and my dad committed adultery and divorced my mom. And around four years ago, I was like, what the heck is going on in my thoughts? Because I'm having adulterous thoughts, like obsessive thoughts running through my mind. And I'm like, and I'm praying and I'm rebuking and I'm like, something isn't right. And as I was praying into it, I felt the Holy Spirit reveal to me that it's because of my father's, my dad's sins and, and the divorce. And so I checked with my mom and asked, mom, when? So how, how long into the marriage did you guys divorce? And she said, after 18 years. And so when my wife and I were married for 18 years, there was these obsessive, adulterous thoughts. It was demonic things coming for me. And I realized I had to break off my, my father's sins and what he committed so that I can be set free from these things. You see, and there's so many of us who have, who are being influenced by our parents' things. And it's, Continuing the cycle of destruction and pain. Love without truth is lust. And the enemy's messing up so many lives. And so I want to help us to be set free. But Jesus is saying, if you look at a woman to lust, if you have strong desire for somebody outside of you, not your spouse, you will find yourself in trouble. You see, one of the core aspects of a beautiful marriage is exclusivity. Husband, wife, who only have eyes for one another. Beautiful, glorious, but the enemy wants in. And so we need to be aware of how the enemy wants to come in. And we need to, we need to contend for purity, for holiness that I believe God wants to bring into our lives. So 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 to 20 speaks about the implications of sexual sins. It says in, in the message, 
There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. So it's like, it's, it's different. Sexual sins. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. Sacredness of our own bodies. It's like you belong to the Lord and, and your body is, it is sacred. It is holy ground. As it says there, these bodies that were made for God given and God modeled love. That's the, these are the boundaries. This is the purpose of these gifts I've blessed you with. This is my way for becoming one with one another. Okay. The, the unity of husband and wife. Verse 19, or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place? The place of the Holy Spirit. Don't you see that you can't live however you please? You can't. Because there are consequences. Squandering what God paid such a high price for. He bought us. In verse 20, God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. Let God, let people see the way you live, that it is different, that it's pure, that it is holy, that it is God's way, and it leads to lasting blessing. Your body is a sacred place. Come on, say sacred place. Sacred place. And so the enemy is assaulting us with so many things, pornography, and so many things. The enemy is trying to get into our hearts and minds, and, and then with that comes so much shame. There's so much shame that comes with sexual sins. You're like, oh, I can't tell anybody. If people knew, you know, no man, talk about it. Get it. That's where love and truth meet. If you want to have a living relationship with God and others, you need to talk about it. You need to say, hey, I don't know what's happening. Why, why am I having these thoughts? Why am I having these emotions? Why am I experiencing these things? That is where you will find freedom. Because freedom is found where love and truth meet. Come on, say amen. Freedom is found where love and truth meet. If you want to be healed, if you want to be set free, if you want to experience the goodness of God, then experience the love of the Father, unconditional love. I love you with all your stuff, with all your sins, with everything you've been through. And then when truth comes, it's like, okay, but let's deal with these things. Let's bring it into the light. Let's repent of these things. Let's allow life to flood in. That is where you find freedom. That is where Jesus shows up. Where love and truth meet. That is where Jesus shows up. That is beautiful. Okay, so but we need to embrace God's standard. You know, every now and again, you know, we pray for somebody and they're having torment in their lives. It could be physical sickness or it could be other things, but torment. And then often when we pray for them, the Holy Spirit will reveal something to us. It's happened multiple times. Pray for somebody and then I would just like, or somebody would say, hey, I feel like something happened when you were like eight years old. And then would come out. She was molested by a family member when she was eight years old. And it's since been a train wreck. So much damage. You see the a man being sexual with an eight-year-old is outside of God's boundaries. It's called molestation. It is destructive. A man that is sexual with a woman against her will, it's called rape. It is destructive. It is a train wreck. It opens the floodgates of hell over somebody's life. So for some of us, things have been done to us. For some of us, we have done things to others or just... Been outside of the boundaries that God has given to us. The result is that the gates are open to the enemy to come in and torment us. And so we want to help you to find freedom. And so I want to quickly show a six-minute video clip by Michael Brown. And he addresses the topic of can you be gay and a Christian? Can you? What does the Bible say about it? Okay, so I want to bring some clarity into this and then we're going to get into the, the last bit. Okay, let's play. Can you be gay and Christian? Well, if you claim to be a Christian, then Jesus is your Lord and the Bible is your authority. So the real question is, what does Jesus have to say about this? 
What does the Bible, God's word, have to say? Now, we know that every Christian struggles in some area, whether it be pride or anger or lust or jealousy or greed. But we also recognize that these desires and attitudes are, are sinful, saying no to them and yes to the Lord. In the same way, some Christians struggle with same-sex attractions, saying no to those attractions and yes to the Lord. But what about those who say, God made me gay? And if I'm in a committed relationship, then the Lord is pleased. After all, God is love and love wins. And what the Bible opposes is, is abusive relationships like homosexual pederasty and prostitution and promiscuity. That's what scripture condemns. But God blesses committed same-sex relationships. Is this true? Well, let's look at what the Bible, God's word, has to say starting at the beginning. There in Genesis 1, we learn that God creates the human race in his image, male and female, and blesses us with the ability to procreate. In other words, he designed us for heterosexuality. And it doesn't take the Bible or rocket scientists to figure that out. And, and it's true that there are heterosexual couples who are barren, but their relationship doesn't violate God's design. Then in Genesis 2, we see that God didn't want Adam, the first man, to be alone. So he decided to make him a suitable helper, not just a companion, but a helper. Why? Because only with Eve would Adam be complete and able to reproduce. And how did he make Eve? He took her out of Adam's rib or side, which is why Adam said that she would be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then note this. The scripture says that through marriage, the two become one. That's because they once were one, the woman taken out of the man. There's unique complementarity between them biologically and spiritually and emotionally. That's why man plus man or woman plus woman can never equal man plus woman. In response, some gay theologians ask, well, if homosexuality is so important, why does the Bible mention it so infrequently? Uh, but you see, they're looking at this exactly the opposite way. They're looking at it backwards. It's because God designed us for heterosexuality that there's so few references to homosexuality. In other words, every single reference in the Bible to marriage, family, and relationships presupposes heterosexuality, as in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and Paul directives to husbands and wives in a same-sex relationship who's the husband and who's the wife also we note that there's not one single positive reference to homosexuality in the bible whereas every single reference to it is decidedly negative as we move on to leviticus we see that there were some laws God gave Israel to keep them separate from the nations, like the dietary laws. And then there were other laws God gave that applied to all people, like do not murder. As for homosexual practice in Leviticus, God calls it detestable, and it doesn't get any less detestable if you do it over and over with the same person. When we, when we come to the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus, he really didn't need to address this because first century Jewish teaching clearly forbade homosexual practice, yet, in three different ways, Jesus did address this. First, in Matthew 5, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill. And when it came to the moral laws of the Torah, he fulfilled them by taking them to an even higher standard. Second, in Matthew 15, Jesus taught that all sexual acts committed outside of marriage defiled. And then in Matthew 19, he taught that marriage as God intended it from the beginning was one man and one woman together for life. Coming to the teachings of Paul in Romans 1, we, we see that because of God's judgment on the human race, we were given over to idolatry and sexual promiscuity and homosexuality with males and females exchanging natural sexual relationships for unnatural sexual relationships. And, and when Paul talks about natural sexual relationships, he's talking about natural as God created us in Genesis chapter 1. Then in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that those who willingly give themselves to homosexuality, along with a number of other sins, would not inherit the kingdom of God. And in fact, Paul's teaching is so clear that one lesbian scholar, Bernadette Bruton, says, I see Paul as condemning all forms of homoeroticism. But Paul didn't stop there. 
He also wrote, that's what some of you once were, but God forgave you and transformed you. That's because Jesus died for homosexual sins the same way he died for heterosexual sins. As for the notion that Moses or Jesus or Paul didn't know about long-term committed same-sex relationships, the fact is they spoke and wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit. Not only so, but Jesus, the Son of God, could look into the heart of every human being. Surely he understood the struggles of someone with same-sex attractions, and yet he didn't affirm them where they were. He offered them transformation. So rather than put homosexual practice into a special category, as if it's the worst of all sins, or as if God is fine with it, put it where it belongs, like other sins, but one for which Jesus died. And rather than finding your identity in your romantic attractions and sexual desires, find your identity in Jesus. That way, rather than interpreting the scriptures through the lens of your sexuality, you can interpret your sexuality through the lens of the scriptures. Amen. Ah, that's good. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Amen. That's how, the, the truth must guide us, not our emotions. And so often when it comes to same-sex attraction and in many other you know, emotional things that we str- people struggle with, you can normally pull it back to some form of trauma on an emotional, spiritual, sexual level. And, and at times there is demonic influences that need to be breaking, broken off. So that one of our pastors in our church family, he shared, say maybe his middle thirties, really anointed man of God. And, uh, and he shared two years ago at our pastor summit that, uh, for most of his life, since the age of like 10 or 12, he's been struggling with same sex attraction. And as no matter what he did, fasting or praying or whatever, it did just didn't get free. And then, uh, about two years ago, he went to one of our pastors in the church family that's really gifted with deliverance. And he and the pastor both shared that they prayed together and he manifested a demon spirit and he was set free. Same sex attraction gone. Okay. So, and there are many, many as hundreds, if not thousands of stories of people getting freedom from same sex attraction. So, there's multiple things, healing in the heart, sometimes spiritual things, but there is freedom in Christ. Amen. So I want to encourage you. Currently in our, in our, in our, in, our, in the world, people are very confused about things like gender and whatever. Look in the mirror. If it looks like a boy, it's a boy. If you look in the mirror, you see a girl. Hey, you're a girl. And and don't don't allow emotions to determine who you are. Allow the truth of God's word. God is not confused. And often we just need healing and counseling and restoration and a bit of love. And then things go much better. Okay, but we'll I'll probably tackle that uh, in the future. So I want to quickly end off with uh, or cover this this aspect. Our culture says divorce is fine. So many people getting divorced. Um, it's like, ah, that's just how it is. But what does God's word say about divorce? And to give you some context, I recently spoke to a couple. I married them and, and I just got a revelation. I actually had to, had to apologize to them. I said, guys, I am sorry that I only focused on the grace and the goodness and the love of God when you were married. And I didn't address the divorces that you've been through, where you divorced your previous spouse. Because I realized it was undealt with, which I will reveal to you in a moment, what the scriptures say about it, is undealt with. And I believe that's the reason so many years later now you are so struggling in your relationship. So I want to say, I am sorry. If I could do it over, I would have done it very, very differently. And so our emotions these days, it says to me, well, I'm not happy in this relationship. So maybe I'm going to be happy somewhere else. I'm not happy. I'm not feeling it. And obviously God wants me to be happy. So maybe I should go try somebody else. Well, the truth is God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. And when you are holy, that leads to happiness. Amen. Come on, say God wants me holy. That is the truth. Holiness leads to happiness. Any compromise in terms of your holiness will always lead to torment and struggling in your connection with God. So Malachi 2 verse 14, this is what God says about divorce. It says, you cry out 
The prophetic word comes to the prophet and says, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? So it's like, God, why do I feel so disconnected from you? Lord, why am I not experiencing your presence and your, and your goodness? And then the Lord says, I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. God says, I witnessed. I was there. So when we, when somebody gets married, it's not only before human family and friends witnesses, it is before the one. It is a covenant where you make a vow before God and you say, Father, I will love this woman all my days in sickness and in health and good times and in bad. And man, marriage has some bad times. If you're married for more than two weeks. <laughs> They are challenges. But the Lord says, I'm, I'm the witness. I, I'm, I witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Fascinating way the Lord describes it. The wife of your marriage vows. I'm seeing covenant vows until death. Do we part? God was there. You know, and I, I think in our modern culture, we don't understand the implications of covenant. So I'm going to give you two examples that just opened my eyes of the, the, the importance of covenant and the consequences of breaking a covenant. First example, Old Testament, 2 Samuel 21 verse, verses 1 to 2. It says, now there was a famine in the days of David, the king. For three years, year after year, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. Verse two. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Okay, some backstory. So in the days of Joshua, in the book of Joshua, the Israelites move into Canaan, they conquer the land, and then this group tricked them, the Gibeonites tricked them to make a covenant. And the covenant was a vow before God that we will protect you, we will not kill you. That is hundreds of years before. So hundreds of years later, King Saul kills some Gibeonites. One generation later, there's a famine over the land. And David's like, God, what's going on? Three years of famine. And God says it's because of the breaking of a covenant from hundreds of years before by Saul. The issue wasn't the killing of the Gibeonites. The issue was the breaking of the vows before God. This is huge. National famine. National curse because of the breaking of a covenant. So Ezekiel 17 verse 11 and 12, another... um angle on this. I've been reading through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and it just, it is horrific. Israel turned away from God. Idolatry, other gods, worshiping other gods. And God says judgment's coming. So so he brings prophet after prophet saying, repent, you're serving other gods. There will be consequences. And so Babylon comes, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he um, lays siege in Jerusalem and and he removes the the one king and he takes some leaders away to um, Babylon and he he reinstates another king and they make a vow. They make a covenant where the king says, I'm going to serve. We're going to serve Nebuchadnezzar. We won't rebel. We won't rebel. And then it gives, then it says here in verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Now the context there is like Israel is like a plant and is dying, is being uprooted and is dying. This nation is dying. And he says, what does this mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. Okay, that's Nebuchadnezzar taking the first king. Verse 15. But he, the new king, rebelled against him, Nebuchadnezzar, by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he, the new king, the Israelites, who does such things escape? Then can he break a covenant and still be delivered. 
Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? The answer is no. The new king broke covenant with his enemies. And God is saying judgment. Because God values covenant. The result is they were laid siege by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. It was horrific. Massive famine in the city to the point where it says, and I know this is horrific, okay, but I want to make a point through this. The parents would eat their own children. Horrific. And I believe that's a spiritual, it's a metaphor for the impact of us, you and me, and our people breaking covenant upon covenant upon covenant. A famine in the land, spiritually. A disconnect between us and God. And it costing our children. Where the children are consumed. You have to see this. We need to have the fear of God upon us to realize you've made a vow before God. You've said until death do we part. I will love this woman. I will love this man all my days. And so verse 15 in Malachi 2, ending off with this, it says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? This is unity. It says in body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from a unit. He wants blessed children, not children that are devoured. So guard your heart. Don't allow lust in. Don't allow adulterous thoughts in. Don't allow the enemy to come and divide. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Remain loyal to the husband of your youth. Remain loyal. Guard your heart. Guard your thoughts. Don't allow the enemy in. And then verse 16. God says, for I hate Divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And he says, this is powerful. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. You're overwhelm her with cru- cruelty. Another translation says to, to, to bring violence to your wife, to your family, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So God, your heart, do not be unfaithful. To your wife. Do not be unfaithful to that covenant. Because it will bring a famine. It will bring a curse. It will cause the children to be devoured. God says, I want the children to be blessed. And so I'm going to make this point. And I I was meditating upon this. And I realized it says it it will bring violence. If you want to know what divorce looks like. If you choose to divorce your partner. It is like the husband, the dad. Who's the one who's supposed to protect his wife and protect his children. The man who's supposed to contend for them and love them and lay his life down for them. As Jesus laid down his life for the church. The one who's supposed to, 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 to shower them with kindness and goodness and mercy and gentleness. The dad who's the, the king and the priest in the home who's supposed to protect his home. He becomes the one who storms into the house and he beats his own family up. He does violence to them. That's divorce. Imagine a husband and father, a man beating up his wife and beating up his children. That is what divorce is emotionally and spiritually. It is destructive. It is destructive. And I realize we, our nation is sick with the amounts of divorce and broken families. And I believe it's brought a curse on our land. It's brought a curse on our families. And if you, you know, and yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, there's compassion. And yes, God loves us. There's always in all of these things, there's this hope that if we would turn to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and cleansing, he will forgive and he will cleanse and he will break the curse. But I tell you, I believe they are generational curses, even as I experienced 18 years into marriage. And I'm like, what is going on? Because of the curse of divorce. And so I believe the Lord wants to break this off our lives. First of all, guys, I want us to contend. contend. If you're married, contend for your heart and contend for your spouse. But on another level, we need to contend for the coming generations as well. We need to remove the curse. What is a curse? A curse is an open door to the enemy. Demonic powers coming in to cause destruction in our relationships. And we want to break it off our lives. 
Amen. Come on, say amen. So practical, just very quickly, just want to put it on the screen. When love and truth meet, love and truth meet. How do you, do, how, how do you deal with these things? Number one, understand the gravity of sin. It is serious. It is serious. You need to like, God, forgive. Lord, I realize, whoa, what did I do? What did my parents do? What did the previous generations do? God, gravity of sin. Go read the Old Testament. The Old Testament just reveals sin is destructive. It leads to death on every level. But Jesus came, New Testament, to bring forgiveness and healing. Number two, own your sin and repent. Don't blame. eh? We like to blame. That's his fault, her fault. All these reasons why we sin. But no, 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 just own it. Even if it's you, just 20% of the the cause, then God, forgive me. I should have worked harder. I should have invested more in my marriage before it folded. God, forgive me. Number three, receive forgiveness. He loves you more than you can imagine. He loves you more than you can imagine. Receive forgiveness, not shame. Receive a cleansing and a washing. And number four, pursue deliverance. Because your children and children's children depends upon you breaking this stuff off your life. Fight for that covenant. Fight for your marriage. Fight for relationship. And so I so want to encourage you to, for, for all of us to, to join us at the Freedom Encounter. We're going to go into these things in more depth. And we want to break things off our lives. So, so please stand with me. I want to end off with this. When love and truth meet, the quote, Truth without love, it kills. And I am not preaching at you today. I am preaching at myself. Truth without love kills. Love moves us to speak the truth. But love without truth lies and we need to, we, we cannot afford to lie. We cannot afford culture to cause the church to be quiet. We have to speak. We have to preach the word of God no matter what. So guys, when love and truth meet, that is where Jesus shows up. That is where the glory of God is seen. That is when relationships stand the test of time. Thank you for listening. Find more on Shofar East London's podcast channel. Let's do life together.